BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Welcome, everyone, to episode 14 of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I am your host, Jack Rico. Christmas is almost upon us, and on this episode, we're reintroducing some pop culture elements back into the show, but I'm keeping some politics because, of course, Donald Trump has blurred the lines of the affairs of the state and entertainment. No one seems to know what's what anymore. Regardless, many things have happened in entertainment worth talking about this week, such as the Golden Globe nominations, the SAG nominations... We haven't talked about the Grammy nominations as well, and the arrival of Rogue One, a Star Wars story in theaters right now. I'll chat with my good friend Adam Garcia, Yahoo editor and author of the Green Llama novels, uh, about what you can expect for your money with this film. And what's the required reading and viewing to understand where we are in America today? Well, I suggest a book and a documentary for you to see and read to familiarize yourself a bit with the Rust Belt of our nation and race history in our country. And we speak with Oliver Darcy from businessinsider.com about arguably the most talked about topic in media, fake news. What do you have to do not to get fooled? Hey, brother. Hey, good morning, Mr. Star Wars. <laughs> good morning, Mr. Rico. How are you? <laughs> you ready to talk some Rogue One? Oh, boy, am I. <laughs> Yahoo editor Adam Garcia joins us today to talk a little bit about Rogue One, a Star Wars story, which is the new uh, Star Wars movie that came out this week. And a lot of th- people are talking about this film, uh, mixed reviews on it. So we're talking to Adam to kind of find out his point of view. What did you think about this film? What were some of the key things that stood out to you more than any other uh, Star Wars films that you've seen before? You know, what stood out to me, uh, this is... Uh, this is a prequel that I wanted. Um, this is the, you know, when the first prequels came out, it was. So you loved the, it. I, Sounds like you loved it. Lo- I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I mean, look. I See, now we're, it. We're, we're, at a, we're at a disagreement already. I thought yeah. this film wasn't for love, but I think it was a good like movie, but not a love movie. Mm. I can understand why people didn't enjoy, like, like folks like yourself, like, you didn't love it. For me, you know, it showed a side of Star Wars that I've always wanted to see. You know, it, it was gritty. Um, I liked seeing these various different worlds. I loved uh, things like Jaja, where you, just by the name alone, implicates a lot that this might have something to do with the Jedi's past. We don't really know. Uh, and it's a, sort of like you can scratch the surface and there's more to it. The use of crab crystals, there's the implications of what Jada meant. You know, it, it, there was something important here. Uh, but it also felt real world. It felt like, you know, having uh, visited uh, Israel years and years ago, like we walked through these old towns and old cities where major religious things happened. 
um, that felt like that. And that is something that I hadn't really seen in Star Wars. Um, a lot of the planets that we saw, I don't feel like I'd ever seen in Star Wars before. And there must have been a hundred planets that they mentioned right off the bat. I was like, how am I yeah. supposed to remember all these planets? I like, yeah, how can you remember all those planets? But at the same time, I like that because it, it just felt like it, it felt, felt new. Like there was no it felt new. It also reminded us of the scope of this galaxy, of this world. It gave me so many things I didn't know I wanted to see. Like, I didn't know that I wanted to see the Death Star Eclipse sun. I didn't know that I really wanted to see the Death Star, like, come over the horizon. Um, I didn't know that I really always wanted to see what it looks like when uh, the Death Star hits a planet. And, like, what does that look and feel like? Um, and I say this, I, I, this is... What I'm about to say might sound like a backhanded compliment, um, but it's not. It was a fan film. Um, it was a film clearly made by a fan. It was answering a lot of questions that, you know, you watch a lot of fan films on, online, and they try to do a lot of things like this, you know, like answering this little question, making this uh, weird connection. In a lot of ways, Star Wars is now, you know, the, the inmates have uh, taken over the asylum. Now, these are people who love the property, who care about it. Um, so there's all these little touches in the film, be warned. Um, you know, there's, there's a character from the Moist Eisley Cantina that literally repeats his line that shows up. That's, that was the most fan servicey moment. Um, but then you have, like, Red Leader coming in, like, using an actual shot from A New Hope. Uh, the death of Rogue, uh, Red Five, which answers why... Uh, Luke becomes Red Five. Um, and the biggest thing that stands out to my mind uh, is Vader. That last scene with Vader, man. I always wanted to see Darth Vader be a force of nature, to be something to be feared. And for the first time that I can recall in my adult life, I was terrified of Vader. In that sequence of him coming into uh, that hallway and just decimating the rebels, uh, the holding on the, the, the shadow doorway... And then the lightsaber clicks on. It you felt the fear that the rebels were feeling, and those are the things that kind of stand out, out to my mind. So let's talk a little bit about the diverse ensemble. It's to me yeah. one of the most salient things and one of the most revolutionary things that the Star Wars franchise has offered uh, fans and non-fans alike. Do you feel it worked? I needed to see it. You know, I really needed to see that sort of diversity and both in the Star Wars universe, but also um, as, as, as a human, uh, as, a, as a left-leaning human being. It works a lot. I think Diego Luna was, I like that he was a leader. I like that he was a Hispanic lead. You know, Asians and women. Pakistanis and, uh, with Riz Pakistani. Ahmed. I thought Diego yeah. Luna was excellent, man. I mean, on yeah. so many levels, I was looking at his character of Cassian, Cassian Andor, and yeah. I just kept on thinking this guy is way too comfortable, way too fluid in this character, like yeah. he's played him for lifetimes. Yeah. Kind of like the way Harrison Ford returned to Han Solo and you knew that he knew him in and out because the DNA of that character was him. And so I felt that Diego yeah. Luna uh, was so familiarized with the character yeah. that it was a little shocking to me because, first of all, let's be honest about something. 
Latinos are never in blockbuster films at this level with that amount of yeah. screen time. His comfortability and malleability in this character, which I actually thought he was better than Felicity Jones as the true star of this film, mm-hmm. had this Han Solo quality, and I'm sure that Harrison Ford's Han Solo served as an inspiration uh, when he was creating and doing the process to get into character. There were so yeah. many good things from him there. I thought he was the best of the bunch, um, but I, I do think that also some of the kung fu, you know, martial arts were Which a little yeah, off-brand. Yeah. How did you feel about that? Seeing these things, yeah, like it's the first time we've seen martial arts really in a uh, in a Star Wars film. But I like that we're seeing a, a glimpse of a wider universe. Like we've never seen a someone like a, who isn't a force of it but believes in the Jedi. Um, that like there's this other aspect of the galaxy. I mean, I wouldn't say it was off-brand. I think it, it's almost more two-brand that implying that there is more to this universe. So when you have Donnie Yen's character uh, doing martial arts, being it's like what is what is his history? What is his uh, culture? Where is he coming from? I want to know more about that. It didn't feel foreign to me. It felt like just another aspect of this galaxy. Felicity Jones as a lead action star, does she pass yeah. or fail? She wasn't Daisy Ridley. There was something about Daisy Ridley. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say that. I said that in my review. I felt like she was yeah, miscast. I, I felt like we could have done better. Look, she's a beautiful woman. And oh, yeah. I'm, I'm very fearful that they chose her because of her physical allure and not because of her acting skills. And somebody could argue, mm-hmm. but wait a minute, she was nominated for Best Actress for The Theory of Everything. Just, and I thought yeah. that she, she didn't necessarily deserve it either. I don't think mm-hmm. she's one of the best actresses that we have in Hollywood. I, could, I thought we could have done much better. Daisy Ridley is barely an actress in terms of mm-hmm. credentials and a resume. Yeah. She's sort yeah. of new on the scene. And for her to mm-hmm. give off a better performance than Felicity Jones, which is much more of a veteran, I thought it was a yeah. fail on that part. I thought they could have done a lot better. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's, to me, it's sort of like it's, yeah, she wasn't. She didn't have the allure of Daisy Ridley, but at the same time, I didn't find her performance offensive. It wasn't like I was sitting there and being like, because you know, there there are a lot of ensemble pieces where there's there's that one actor, that one actress that just stands out as as just significantly weaker. You know, she, yeah, she maybe she wasn't Diego Luna. Maybe she she wasn't even like um, the woman who played uh, Mon Mothma, Genevieve O'Reilly. You know, I think that. There was something magical in these performances, and Felicity Jones, she's fine, but it wasn't just—it wasn't amazing. Um, I wonder if that has to do with the reshoots. Uh, I wonder if that has to do with like the way maybe her character was changed a bit. I mean, there's been some theory on that. I don't know the specifics, mostly because I've tried to avoid spoilers going into this. One thing actually uh, is I was Alan Tudyk's K two K two S O was his hysterical you thought he was hysterical i thought he was cynical and sarcastic and caustic and i just felt like whoa this is a different type of dark humor coming out of the comic relief character yeah i mean uh, i mean i totally agree with with that i mean hysterical in that like yeah he's the comic relief in a way that i was not expecting i was hesitant about it because i'm like here's another cgi character that's meant to be comic relief but i was Every, I mean, the theater I was in would burst into a laugh every time 
he said something, you know. Um, and I think also, the, I mean, I don't know why they keep on killing Al, uh, Alan Tudor. <laughs> killing the fire like, I kind of I want to do, like, a, like I, if I ever get the chance to interview him on the Yahoo, I kind of want to ask, like, why do we keep on killing you? Like, I, know, I was almost I expecting... Know. Expecting K2SO to be like, I'm a leaf on the wind. Hey, listen, speaking of CGI effects, I did want to ask yeah. you about yeah. uh, some of the CGI a- uh, aspects here with Peter Cushing, uh, which yeah. had died in 1994. They brought him back here, but obviously they brought him back with that Benjamin Button sort of technology uh, yeah. of making people younger. And they also applied the same thing with Carrie Fisher at a particular scene. Do you think that movies today and Star Wars in particular should be reviving these old characters in order to uh, create uh, uh, pivotal moments in the plot line with this CGI. Did you like the CGI? Did you feel it was a little creepy, uh, realistic, authentic? I thought Carrie Fisher's uh, Leia, that was a lot more successful and that has a lot to do with the fact that her face is smoother. Like, it's a younger character... Um, there's less that the CGI has to do to create. Like her shot, uh, like it was so quick, so short. It worked for me. Her character worked, and again, that has a lot to do with the fact that like you're dealing with a smooth face uh, actress um, in the prime of her youth. So you know, there's less that the computers need to do. Peter Cushing's. Um, I have to like as, as someone who's a Star Wars fan, it was so cool to see that Tarkin on screen. They did Wayne Pingram did play did play Tarkin in Revenge of the Sith briefly from afar with a, a costume, uh, with a mask on his face. And that was quasi effective. Uh but there is something to be said about seeing like that particular visage uh once again in a Star Wars film. I don't know if they should have had her uh, sorry, had her uh, had him as prominent as they did in the film. Because, you know, in short bursts, the, the CGI worked. But I felt that, like, the more and more you saw it, the more obvious it became. My friend who sat next to me didn't realize it was CGI initially until I pointed it out. Um, like, he thought, he was like, oh, he's got some work done. You know, he thought that, like, he just had some plastic surgery done. I'm like, no, that guy's dead. <laughs> That's what it looked um, like. It looked like he had plastic surgery done and it was Botoxed yeah. out of his mind. Yeah. So, I mean, like, I don't know how those effects are going to live in 10, 15 years. Like, it will be obvious that CGI, I mean, it, it does hit the uncanny valley uh, pretty hard. But, you know, and I'm, I I acknowledge that, like, as a, as a, as a film critic, as someone who, who makes his career in watching and analyzing movies, you know, like, I'm like, that doesn't necessarily work. As I a agree. Star Wars fan, I don't... Yeah, like you know, like as a Star Wars fan, though, like I, I start for Ace forgive it. I'm like, there's bias. It's Tarkin. It's Tarkin's back, and you know, and again, it's it, and and this is something else that I wonder about Rogue One. I think overall, as a standalone film, it's decent. I think it's a uh, it's a good. Uh, yes, I agree. Uh, yeah, but as a Star Wars fan, it means a lot to me. I mean, this movie meant more to me than I know how to say. Like, I don't. I love Force Awakens, but this, like, I mean, I, 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 I've watched Force Awakens several times. I mean, I watch it now, uh, both as a fan and also um, after Trump was elected, I watched it literally on that Wednesday to remember what it 
feels like they have hope in darkness. Where here's what I I think as we uh, wrap up here. uh, Here's what I think. I think that this movie was unnecessary. I feel like they're churning out the factory for Star Wars in order to have Disney come out with a billion-dollar product every single year around this time. I could have done mm-hmm. it without it. Uh, it's a standalone film, and people will understand that when they see the final scene. Yeah. Um, it's a, It serves as a – I call it a 3.5. It's between 3 and between Part 4. It fits right mm-hmm. in the middle. It's a bit of a prequel yeah. to Part 4. And I felt that I could have lived without that story. I've lived without that story since 77. I never felt like I really needed someone to tell me about that story. So we're getting these standalones. I I, I commend it for its diversity. I commend it for a lot of its uh, new takes on things. But... Ultimately, this is a film that is mediocre to me. It's not explosive. It doesn't jump off the screen. It's not better than The Force Awakens. Uh, We had to get used to to way too many characters uh, that leave us early. And I just feel it doesn't really push the narrative of the franchise into the next chapter the way Part 8 will with Oscar Isaac and Daisy Ridley and everybody else. But for you, yeah. if you had to talk to the non-Star Wars fan, what can they expect from this film? Should they pay the hard-earned money to take the whole family to go see this film well, this I, December holiday? Well, I wouldn't say take your whole family. I leave the kids at home. Uh, I think it's really dark, especially that last maybe 10 minutes. Um, it's, uh, I would not take someone under 13 to go see it. Uh, I think it's still a very you know, good action film. I think it's, uh, it's a spectacle, you know, if you're going to pay your hard earned cash to go see something on the big screen, if you're going to, you know, if you're the kind of person that only goes to the theater for blockbusters, this is a very good blockbuster, um, you know, or a very mediocre blockbuster. It's better than the, next it's not movie. terrible. You're absolutely right. It's but solid. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it warrants seeing it on the big screen because the, the visuals, the, it, it if anything, it is a good film to see on the big screen. Adam Garcia, Yahoo editor and Star Wars enthusiast and aficionado, thank you so much for being on the podcast and talking a little Rogue One with me, my man. Oh, my absolute pleasure. <laughs> my absolute pleasure, man. I love talking to you. You know that. All right, man. Talk soon. <laughs> It's time for Jacked In. It's award season. The Critics' Choice Awards, the first televised film and TV award show of the season, which I am a member of, has voted the film musical La La Land Best Picture of the Year. The Golden Globe nominations were also announced, and La La Land once again led the pack with seven nominations, along with Moonlight scoring six nods. The SAG Awards, for its part, nominated the two aforementioned, plus the Matt Damon-produced drama Manchester by the Sea with four nominations. With these nominations already announced, it is easy to predict that the Academy Awards will have these three films in their best picture list. Have you seen any of them yet? Well, if not, head out to see them as soon as you can. They are some of the best of 2016. Y'all haters corny with that Illuminati mask. Moving over to music, the Grammys announced their 2016 Best of the Best list, and Beyonce led all singers with nine Grammy nominations. Drake, Rihanna, and Kanye West have eight nominations each, while Chance the Rapper picked up seven, including new streaming categories. Adele received only five nominations, but in the categories that truly mattered, Record of the Year, 
Album of the Year, and Song of the Year. Even Justin Bieber came through with three awards for Song of the Year, Album of the Year, and Best Pop Solo Performance. The Star-Studded Night will air live on CBS on Sunday, February 12th at 8 p.m. James Corden will host the event, which will take place at the Staples Center in Los Angeles. What do you mean? The alarming damage and chaos fake news has created since Trump's surprise victory over Hillary Clinton is surreal. Remember Pizzagate? Obama spoke about it this week with jeers and many are blaming Facebook for its proliferation. And for that I bring in Oliver Darcy, political editor of BusinessInsider.com who wrote an article exactly on this very topic. Welcome Oliver to the podcast. Hey, thank you so much Jack for having me on. So what blame should Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook get here? Well, uh, Zuckerberg, first of all, is an, an impossible decision. He's uh, he, initially after uh, Trump won the election and um, fake news became a topic. He said that it did not sway the election, and he he said firmly kind of dismissed the issue. But uh, pressure increased, and, and this week they announced Facebook announced that they were taking uh, measures to uh, label fake news fake news, and they were going to draw upon fact checkers from. Um, several news organizations like Pointer, like Press right? and ABC. Yes, yeah, it's, it's an international sort of fact-checking group. Now, and, how does that uh, work exactly? I, I guess what they're going to be doing is is uh, they're looking to target some of the more obvious, just just fabricated stories. And I'm not quite sure on the details, but what's going to happen is once it's determined to be fake, a warning label will pop up on Facebook next to the article or attached to the article saying, that this is fake, and it'll explain why, um, what's wrong about it. Um, and then it's going to be buried in newsfeed so it doesn't show up in other people's, uh, in other people's Facebook feeds. Oliver, how did fake news begin? That's, I mean, that's a good question. I think it's really a symptom sort of of the world we live in, where people are stuck in bubbles, and they're willing to believe things that support their existing worldview, where they are not as willing to see things that challenge it. And people uh, soon realized this, and so you had partisan news outlets kind of cater to different worldviews, whether it's liberal or conservative. And now, uh, I think with the advent of fake news, people realize that they can just fabricate stories, and it'll get tons of shares on Facebook, tons of web traffic, and in in return, they can make some money off of these entirely just fake news news stories. But they're ruining journalism, basically, (laughs) because they're doing this just for a couple of bucks. The people that are doing this, though, uh, are not journalists, per se. You know, they're just just doing this to make a profit. They're exploiting um, people's uh, pre-existing views of the world, and maybe that people who don't understand the difference between abcnews.com and some fake websites and they're just exploiting them to make a quick buck. That, that seems to be what's going on. Right, but not everybody's happy with what Facebook, or at least the guidelines Facebook is taking. Republicans are basically upset because most of these outlets are, are liberal. Why are they so upset about this? We should all kind of be agreeing upon this, no? Right, I think conservatives, uh, we saw when after they announced, uh, Facebook announced this, um, what they're going to do to combat fake news, I think they're worried about the slippery slope here. And for instance, I had people sending me um, things about people, one of the fact-checking groups at Snopes, and people were sending me uh, some of the information on some of the writers who write for Snopes, and they're, you know, have a very liberal worldview. And, and because of that, I think conservatives are worried that their stuff will get fact-checked and scrutinized a lot more, and, while perhaps maybe more liberal fake news won't. And they're also worried that this might be a gateway for Facebook to start, um, I don't know, uh, telling conservative news in the news feed. 
So things that might be on the line, their their worries will be just uh, eliminated. And one of the big things too, I'll, I'll point to is conservatives hearing fake news, um, sway the election for Trump. They also uh, we haven't really talked about how fake news um, is on the left. And one of the big things too is this week, for instance, there was a story about a Muslim who uh, fabricated a a a report to police saying she was harassed by Trump supporters, and that was covered widely in the media. Conservatives will say, "Well, that's fake news, right? Like this was covered. Her claims right. are basically." not check too much, scrutinize very much. Uh, and that spread like wildfire. And that was a fabricated story. So they're saying, well, what about, what about stuff like that? Um, it's, it's a tricky issue. It is. A, it's like a catch 22 there. So what about readers? What due diligence do we make to make sure that we're not re- reading fake news? It's, it's really all about media literacy. And I, I think just trusting outlets, that have a reputation, whether it be Fox News, which is certainly not on the left, or the Wall Street Journal, um, or other outlets like CNN, um, NBC, BuzzFeed. You know, you can, you can trust some of the more new media but established outlets that have, um, I think, guidelines in place where you have editors fact-checking the reporters and, and it goes through several people and their standards, where uh, some of these other websites are just people, you don't want to be getting your news only from people who are maybe blogging in, in the basement, right? right. Um, so I think, I think that, that is important. But I, I, I will also say that it's getting increasingly difficult to tell what is fake and what is real. Yeah, and that's what I was going to tell I, you. Yeah, there was a story, a viral story, um, this past week or so, about a five-year-old child dying in Santa's arms that yes. was widely spread by members of the media. And then that t- story, I think, it turned out to be uh, something that could not be verified. And the newspaper that originally reported it retracted the story. So it's, it's like it, it, in 2016, it's very difficult. There's so many media, it's difficult sometimes to tell what is fake, what's not. I just think readers should double check, triple check stories, um, particularly the ones that seem too outlandish maybe to be true. Oliver Darcy, political editor of businessinsider.com. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Many questions have arisen as of late as to how Trump got elected. For many, the questions have become burdens, and insight is always a good thing at times like this, which is why I'm recommending two items for you to read and watch. The first is a book that is currently a New York Times bestseller called Hillbilly Elegy. You should pick up and read this book from author J.D. Vance. The book focuses and dissects how the white underclass rebelled against politics as usual in Washington and brought back attention to an often ignored section of middle America. Vance writes it in a way that is thoughtful, sympathetic, and insightful. A timely book for readers searching for wisdom. 13th Amendment to the Constitution makes it unconstitutional for someone to be held as a slave. There are exceptions, including criminals. The second item is Ava DuVernay's documentary, 13th. It's not only a powerful dissection on America's mass incarceration problem, but it gives a detailed analysis on how the white class distorted the vision of black culture in America. Its effect is eye-opening, disheartening, and chilling. And that concludes our 14th episode of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I want to thank Adam Garcia and Oliver Darcy for being on the show. And if you have any questions, please tweet me at Official and share your opinions and thoughts and how you're feeling about Trump and our new dawn of American politics. Thanks for listening, and may God bless us all.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 